good morning. We're glad you came to spend time with us, but more importantly, we're glad you came to celebrate uh, Jesus in this place. And, and I'm always grateful for every opportunity that I have. I'm grateful for the chance I have every week to be able to open up God's Word and teach it or preach it or speak it, communicate it, however you term this thing that you allow me to do. And I never know when it's going to be my last opportunity to do that. And so I, I really, really love the, the blessing of being able to have those moments with you. I also realize that if you allow this setting to be the only time that you engage God's Word like this, then you're really settling, and you're settling for something less than what God has intended for you. Like, there's much more that God has for you and his relationship with you and your faith journey that can be accomplished in you sitting down for 27 to 31 minutes and allowing me to open up God's story and say, this is what we're looking at today. So as much as I love the opportunity, I want this to be just the beginning. The launching pad for you to open up the story of God yourself. Um, God told a man named Joshua years and years ago, who was beginning a new season of life, he was going to be leading over a million people, an entire nation, and the the, the uh, predecessor was had gone, he was no longer with them, so he was there in place. And God's word of instruction to him was to not allow this story to ever depart from his mouth. He said, meditate, which means to say over and over again, meditate on this day and night, and then you will be successful. The biggest book in the entire story of God is the book of Psalms. And in the very first one, Psalm number one, Psalm one, it says that the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord is like a tree planted by a stream of water, and whatever he does is going to prosper. So there is an, a lot of promise. There is an incredible amount of hope that we find and engaging in God's word, but for whatever reason, and we all have different reasons, at times we just choose not to. And we're thinking, this is, you know, this is my time. I'll allow the guy who supposedly knows a little bit more, I'll allow him to tell me what it says. And as much as I'm thankful for the opportunity and to whatever degree of trust you, you've placed here where I am, um, there's more to that. And the truth is, I know I can't force you to do it. And I've realized through the years, I can't even force you to want it. But what I can do is work hard to, tra to take off the intimidation wrapper so that whenever that time comes and you're actually ready to immerse yourself into this yourself, you'll be able to do that. It won't be for a lack of knowledge. It won't be for a lack of understanding. I'm going to take all that off so that you can jump into this on your own. I look at it in many ways like fishing. When I was a kid, I enjoyed fishing with my dad. We didn't do it a lot, but we did from time to time, especially in the summer, go out and we'd fish in the morning or in the evening. We did a lot of camping. We had a little pop-up camper that we toted around and went all across the state of Tennessee to different places, and we would camp and we would fish. And I would always say I enjoyed fishing with my dad, but when I was seven, eight, or nine years old, what I was really doing was allowing him to fish, and I was a part of the process. I would go with him, I would carry the tackle, I would get into the boat, or I would set up the chairs on, on the bank, whatever the case was. But then my dad would take my rod and reel, he would take the hook, and he would put the live bait on it. Then he would hand it to me, and then I would cast and fail. He would take it from me, cast it out farther, then he would give it to me, 
And whenever I got a bite, I would reel in until I could see the fish, and then I would stop and say, Dad, what do I do? He would come over and take the rod and reel. He would take the fish off and then either release or throw it in the cooler, whatever the case was for the day. So I was fishing kind of, but not really. And I know when I was eight or nine years old, my dad realized it was time for me, and he said, Son, I want you to reach into that bucket of crickets, and I want you to put one on your hook. And as an eight-year-old kid, I'm reaching into a bucket of crickets, and I don't know if you've ever had that experience before, but when your little eight-year-old hand grabs some crickets, they tickle, like it tickles a lot. And so after losing 10, 12, 14 crickets, my dad's like, fine, I'll do it myself. Then he would give me a Ziploc bag with some minnows in it, and he had poked a few holes at the top to make them last, you know, extra 60 seconds. Here's a bag of minnows, and why don't you reach in and grab one that's still alive and hook it and put it in. Then you're like, well, I, don't, I like looking at them. I like shaking the bag, but I don't know how to, you know, kind of fork one in. Like, that it was just a weird thing, and so he would do it for me. But the time came when I had to do it myself, and I learned to do that. I learned how to put the worm or put the cricket or put the minnow, whatever the case was. And then we would fish, but it was next level when the fish got close to me. Because how do I take it off? You know, how do you grab it? I don't want to get bitten. And I remember one time my dad saying, well, fish don't bite. And I, as a kid, I thought, that's literally the phrase. We're going because the fish are abiding. Like, that's the thing. Like, yeah, of course they bite. Like, how are we? Like, that doesn't even make sense. And so my little intellectual, arrogant nine-year-old self was going, they are biting and they can bite. So how do you take it? You know, so we're having that conversation. My dad taught me how to do that. So after a while, I learned how to fish. So whenever I wanted to fish, I could fish for myself. Now, I would probably catch more if I would stay close to someone who was more experienced and knew what he was doing or she was doing, but I could still fish. And while I hope there will always be a role for me in your church family, uh, there may come a time when you're thinking, you know, I'll fish for myself. I don't even think I need that guy. I think I know more than he does, actually. And that may be true, but just let me pretend and let me continue on in my role here. My desire, though, is for you, whenever your heart gets stirred, and some of you are just not there, and it breaks mine to know that, but I just know, I know it's true. Your heart just doesn't really care a whole lot. But when God begins to stir, and God gets a hold of you, and you're actually ready to immerse yourself into what it would be to be all in with Jesus, I want you to be able to go, well, this is not a big deal. It was never an issue of not understanding. I just didn't have the want to, because now I know. So what I want to do today and for the next couple of weeks is what I hope to do from time to time is just step away from an inspirational story in Scripture that even though it fires me up and I don't forget about it, I love soaking in with the people and identifying with the people in Scripture, every now and then I want us to take a step back and look at a book or a section of books and try to understand what it's all about so that when you go home and you open up on your own whenever that time is, you don't get so stuck and, well, I don't know what this means. I can't pronounce this word. I don't know when this was. I don't understand the setting. I don't know why you would say that. At least you'll have that. And we can take off the intimidation wrapper or the knowledge wrapper, whatever it is, and at least now you're able, whenever you're ready, to jump in on your own. And so I wanted to do that in the beginning this week with a few books that are often called the prison letters. They're books that were obviously written in prison. And the writer's name was Paul. And we're going to look at one of those four today. The four books are Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. So we're going to look at Ephesians today. And if you have a Bible, open it up to there. We 
have already seen a little bit from chapter one as we looked at that prayer earlier when uh, Mike read that uh, over us and we read it on the screen together. But the situation with Ephesians is that the writer, Paul, is not able to be with the people. So he's writing a letter to send to them because he can't help them and he can't lead them in person and he can't see things for himself. So the question I want us to have in the beginning as we launch is, what if by default, suddenly you were the most knowledgeable follower of Jesus in the community? Like what if suddenly you were the one that had to teach it, live it, speak it, demonstrate it, invite people to it, carry it on? If that was the case, how long would the Jesus movement thrive in our city if it was up to you? Because that, in a way, is the people's situation here in Ephesus. Like, they knew a lot. Paul had spent significant time training them, but he was no longer with them. And they couldn't say, Paul, we need you down here. Like, this is a mess. Paul, we're having an argument over here. What do we need to do? Paul, we don't know how to handle this. Could you come in for a little workshop here? Could you preach for a little while here? Can you help us work through this conflict? They weren't able to do that. So Paul's writing this letter in part trying to help them understand what it really is to fully live as a follower of Jesus, all in. Because they were surrounded by people of different languages, different socioeconomic understandings, some different backgrounds, and different uh, understandings of Scripture, different levels of knowledge. They were all together, and Paul was helping them understand they're one big family now, and it was a challenge for them. And Paul's writing this letter to help them know how to live it out, because no time soon was he going to be spending with them. No time soon would he be arriving saying, hey, we can fix this, we can figure this out. They were in many ways on their own for a while. And Ephesus wasn't a little bitty town on the backside of nowhere. It was a big port. It was the commercial and religious center for uh, what was, no, was known as Asia Minor at the time. It was a big city. And the church in Ephesus was a big deal. So this book, this letter that we call Ephesians, is called that because it was a letter written to the church in Ephesus. So Ephesus and Ephesians, that's, that's you know, America, Americans, whole deal. So that's how we understand uh, what it was all about um, from their perspective. Now, when you're reading Ephesians, no matter what you read, understand that perspective. You've got a man who's stuck at his house under house arrest. He has a guard around him. He can't go anywhere. And he's doing his best to communicate everything he can to help these people begin to move forward. So in chapter 4, verse 1, because we're not going to be able to look at the whole book, obviously, today. In chapter 4, verse 1, we have, a, a, in many ways, a summary of what Paul's trying to accomplish. He says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. You've received this calling, this gift of salvation God's given you. He saved you by grace. That's covered in other parts of this letter. He says, Now I want you to live a life that's worthy of the calling. God gave you a gift. Now live as someone who was worthy of the gift. Not in the sense of earn it or it'll be taken away from you, but in the sense of realize what you've been given. Now live a life that matches that. And then he begins to go on and unpack what he means by living a worthy life. And in chapter 4, verse 17, we've got the beginning of a lot of verses that I probably would have encouraged him not to share. It's, it's a little bit much. And if I was next to Paul and he was writing it, I probably would have had a lot of, can we say this differently? Are we sure we want to have this communicated in this way? In verse 17, he wrote, so I'll tell you this and insist on it in the Lord 
that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they're full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned. When you heard about Christ and were taught in him uh, in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, you were taught with regard to the former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your mind. And to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. That's a lot. That's a lot. So Paul is trying to help them understand what it is to live a new life. And he begins to contrast, and then he gets to the end talking about this new life and this old life. There are a couple of questions I want us to ask ourselves so we don't just get lost in all these words that Paul has today. The first question is this. What's new about me? If I've been made new, if God is asking me to put on the new self, what about me is actually new? As I look at my life, I look at the lives of those around who may not know Jesus, what is actually new? Because we can slap on a new and improved sticker on ourselves and say, I'm different. But really, the people around us are going to know, are we really different? Have we really changed? And we, we do that from time to time with each other. We'll see someone make some sort of loud public declaration. We'll watch their baptism on a Sunday morning. And then we just step back and wait on the new. And sometimes we begin to wonder, is anything new at all? Then we look in the mirror and go, well, what about you? Is anything new about me? Maybe this isn't about them. It's a little bit about me. So when I look at my own life and do some evaluation and do some inventory, what is actually new about me? How am I handling things differently now than the old me handled things? How am I now handling adversity or conflict or disappointment or whatever the thing is? How am I handling that differently now than I did before I was walking with Jesus? Paul gave some specific examples in verse 2 in chapter 4. He said, be completely humble and gentle, be patient. Bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Then skipping down into uh, verse 31, we read, Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. So he gives these examples of what it is to be new. And he mentions compassion and patience, forgiveness, on and on. Nowhere there did he mention any big, bold, brave acts of faith. Now that you're new, do this. Now that you've been made new and you're born again, this is what I want you to do. Instead, he just said, do what you've been doing, but do it from a new place, a new perspective. Do it from a new heart. If some of you who are not followers of Jesus make that decision today and say, today's the day. I've been in the boat, and I've seen other people fish, and I've been around all this stuff before, but I've never made it my own, and today's the day I'm going to become a follower of Jesus. If you make that decision, tomorrow morning, when you wake up, you can look to the heavens and say, God, I've been made new. I'm born again. Now what do you want me to do? And God's just going to say, go to work. Like, go to work. It's Monday. Well, yeah, but I'm born again. You still got a job, and you still have some mouths to feed, and you still got to provide. Yeah, but I'm, I'm new. Well, then get your new self to work. Like, go do your thing. But as you go to work, do it in a new way. 
as you eat and as you prepare and as you drive there, begin now demonstrating and exhibiting patience and mercy and hope and joy. And when you get there, practice forgiveness quickly. Make sure there's no bitterness and rage and anger in your life as you go throughout your day. Rarely is God going to say, now that you're born again, throw away your job, move to a new town, get a new family, get some new friends, let's just start over. That's not how it works. God says, now you take the abilities and talents that I've given you, and now you're going to use them for something else. Now you're going to use them for a different reason. So Paul, as he begins to help them understand what's going on, he harps on this idea of being new. So as I'm processing through this, I'm asking myself, I hope you are too, what is it about me that handles conflict and disappointment, even success and failure differently now than before? Or how am I handling adversity, conflict, success, disappointment differently than those around me who are not followers of Jesus? Because sadly, sometimes we look around and realize we're not even the most moral people in the room. And there are people who don't even know who Jesus is and choose not to follow him, but yet they're seemingly full of more integrity than we are. And maybe that's not the case, but it feels that way because the difference is just so cloudy. There ought to be a significant visible difference between something that is new and something that is old. And if God has made my life, made my heart new, then I ought to look differently than those around me who have not yet had that experience. Not because I'm better than them, but because of the new thing that God has done in my life. Well, Paul gets even more specific and starts talking about uh, different sections of what it is to be new. And he talks about the things that we do. And in verse 28, he says, Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. He said, don't take your little stealing hands and cut them off and as a way of showing how sad and sorry you are for it. He says, take those same hands that used to be dirty that I've made clean and do something different with them. In other words, the stuff you do, your talents, your abilities, your opportunities, the open doors, I'm still going to give you those things, but understand now why I have given them to you and use them in a way that honors me by serving people. So you may not have a new talent when you come to know Jesus. He may say, this is actually the purpose of your talent. This is the purpose of your gift. This is why I've given you this opportunity. This is why I've blessed you beyond anything you ever thought possible. This is why I've done this in your life. So when we talk about what we're doing, we talk about our hands. And so the second question to ask as we work through this same idea, really, is how holy are my hands? It's an odd phrase, but at least you won't forget it. How holy are my hands? And when I mean hands, I mean just things that we do, our actions, and what I'm doing with my talents and my gifts and my opportunities and open doors, how holy or set apart are my hands? Have I taken the actions and opportunities that I have and set them apart saying, God, I want to honor you with this. They're yours. I'm yours. Do whatever you want to with me. When the uh, pandemic first began, and we were all so careful with our hands and what we touched and what we did. Every single motion was awkward and weird and we were coming in here on Sundays and doing air high fives and bumping elbow. It was, we were, it was like four-year-olds at preschool for the first time, not knowing how to be cool, just like, hey, it was just this weird thing that was going on. We'd go see our families, and you half hug your mom, and then when she turns around, you're pumping Purell on your hand. Like, like what do we do? It was just the weirdest, strangest thing. 
and we were all so careful of what we were touching. We were going to the grocery store and pushing our buggies with our elbows and grabbing the sanitizer wipes. And I, I have never cared about a germ in my entire life. And all of a sudden, my hands were just peeling because of bleach. Like I acted like all of a sudden, like I can't handle any, any dirt at all, my fingernails. I'm, it was so strange, and we were so careful to a very awkward point. But what if we just took a little bit of that passion and said, God, you've given me these eyes. You've given me this mind to think. You've given me this ability to lead. You've given me these hands to build and do and make and create. And you've opened these doors, these opportunities for me. You've given me these relationships. You've given me all this stuff. I want to be incredibly careful how I use it because I want to set it apart to make sure I'm honoring you with this. Most of the time, we're just so careless with what we do. We don't even think about it. And very few of you are trying to break God's heart with what you're doing and your actions. You just don't think. You don't set it apart. But when something is set apart, which is what holy means, it's set apart. We're thinking, oh, no, no, that can't touch that. Oh, no, we got to be careful with that. We want to make sure we're clean and ready and that we're, we're prepared to touch this one. Don't have this around here. We set it apart. Now, some of you are thinking, are you talking about perfection? Because I'm not going to be a part of that. And this is not about perfection. This is more about how quickly we recognize that we need to make a change. Because at some point, we're all going to have dirty hands. We're all going to make some really poor decisions. Borderline stupid. We're going to do things that we're embarrassed about, that we're ashamed of. And it's not the fact that we've messed up. It's how quickly are we going to try to make it right. To say, God, that's not me. That's not who you created me to be. When I became a dad, one of the first, you know, eye-opening moments was, you know, you're going to change diapers. Like, that was, that was one of those, ah, I really hadn't thought about that, you know, kind of moments. And in the beginning, like, the dirtiness, it didn't seem to bother my child. Like, you know, she's a few weeks old, a month old or so, and I walk into the room where she is, and like, oh, good, great. you know, what in the world, it just kind of hits you in the face. And I look at my daughter like, how could you sit in this? Like, come on, like, we got to clean up. This is, this is not a good situation for you. It's not the princess that I have prayed for you to be. You know, you put her on the, the changing table, and you're just making all those faces and turning, you know, doing the whole deal. And for a while there, it's just like that. You show up and go, how long have you been this way? Like, what is going on? And then as she aged and as she grew and developed and matured, she became less okay with it. And then... You know, she's close to walking around, and when she has a full diaper, she just kind of come around like, I'm not really content. Like, I, something needs to happen here. Like, she couldn't say, Daddy changed me or Mama changed me. It was just like, uh, this is wine thing happening. In other words, she was like, I don't, uh, no, as I'm, I'm not okay with this situation. And if I could have an adult conversation, I would have looked and said, six months ago, you sit in that junk for five hours and you were fine with it. But now all of a sudden, we got to change quickly. You know, like everything was different. And when we first get to know Jesus, there are times when we just kind of fumble our way through this thing. But as we grow and as we develop, it's not about are we going to mess up? Because every Christian soils himself at some point. It just kind of happens. It's how quickly do I run to God and say, God, you, I got to be changed. I got to be different. You got to clean me up. You got to do something for me that I can't do because I'm not okay with this. The problem is when we're okay with it. 
and we're not going to be perfect regardless, but how quickly do we run to the only one who can truly change us inside and out? So how holy are my hands? Then in verse 29, he shifts away from the stuff we do and he gets to the stuff we say. In verse 29, Paul wrote, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Man, that's a strong verse. Don't let anything come out of your mouth that doesn't build someone else up. Don't let anything come out of your mouth that is unwholesome and doesn't build up the body. It's not helpful. So the second question to ask is, how helpful are my words? As I'm working through this book of Ephesians, how helpful are my words, really? Because if I'm going to be made new, if I'm putting off the old self and I'm living in a new way, how helpful are my words? Because I'm not supposed to say anything that doesn't build someone up. And we're all going to be guilty of this because we're all so careless with our words. But that's why Paul is telling the church, I can't be here with you. I can't play police from a distance here. I'm just telling you, this is how we honor God. This is how the new life is lived. It's having holy hands and it's having helpful words. At this day and time and all that we're, that's going on around us and all that we're living through, if you're a follower of Jesus, I would encourage you to say a lot less and just listen more. Because we're in a place now where even when we don't mean to, there will be some things that we say that are going to hurt other people. And we could say, well, I'm free to say it. It's truth. It's all in here. I'm just kind of mouthing it out loud. But at some point, we have to look at the heart of what we're saying and say, is this helpful? Is this really helpful? We've had a lot that we're going through over the last few days and continue to go through as a country. And um, there's a lot of anger and frustration and protests and stuff all around us after the overturn of Roe versus Wade. And um, I, I can look into God's word. And I can see and read, and it's not difficult for me to understand how God values life. Like, that's, that's pretty clear to me. I, I'm not struggling going, what is this? What? I, get, I get God's perspective on this. I also know that I have special people around me that I know of and that I don't know of that have gone through the pain of aborting a child and living the rest of their lives with that. And that is a pain that I will never understand. And that's a challenge that I will never get. But I know it's real. And I value their lives as well. So for me, that means sitting on my words for a moment and saying, how is this going to come across? How am I going to be able to say this? Because I love this and want to stand on this truth. I also love these people. And I hate what they've had to go through and what they're working through and the emotion and all the things that are happening there. So I have to go back to moments like this and say, Paul told me not let any unwholesome talk come out of my mouth. This is, this is instruction here, but only what is helpful. So if I say this, is it going to be really clear that I'm trying to help? Is it going to be really clear that I'm trying to build up? Is it going to be really clear that I'm doing my best to speak the truth in love with grace and mercy and understanding all the way through. And that's a challenge for all of us. It was a challenge for them 2,000 years ago. When Paul wrote this, I doubt there are very few verses throughout the book of Ephesians where when they finally read it to the church in Ephesus, people stood up and said, amen. Like, yeah, I think it was just quiet. Like, hmm. 
okay, that, that's going to be challenging. That's going to be difficult. This is not one of those books you read through and go, got it, done, been there, yes. These are moments where we stop and begin to evaluate and think, huh, how do I line up here? So how helpful are my words? So Paul sums both of these things up in chapter 5, beginning of verse 3. He says, among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be any obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking which are out of place. I hope sarcasm is not what coarse joking means. Anyway, but rather thanksgiving. I hope. I'm in trouble. For, all, for of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light. Now, I wish Paul had just said, live as children of the light, or as he prayed in chapter 1. I want you to be overwhelmed and flooded with light in your life. But instead, he had to explain what he meant. And you've got this list of stuff that if I was the proofreader, I would think, Paul, seems a little harsh. Like, maybe step back on that a little bit. Maybe you'd put a little bit more encouragement before you give them the hard stuff. But it is really clear. It is pretty cut and dry what he's saying. So is what I'm doing holy and is what I'm saying helpful? Now, I wish that I could answer that question and just say, oh, enough's enough. If what I'm doing is not holy, if what I'm saying is not helpful, then I won't do it anymore. But I'll honestly tell you that there are times when, even though I have a strong love for the Lord, that my love for God is not enough to keep me from making mistakes. Sometimes I have to have a little more motivation, and I think that's probably the case with many of you. Uh, these aren't on the screen, and these are things I just kind of added in late, late last night. After a UFC fight, but anyway, late last night, um, and I thought, okay, why though? When the truth is just not enough to make the change, why? And I shouldn't even need these, and you shouldn't need these either, but I'm going to give them to you because I've still got a little time left. Uh, one, we'll give an account. At some point in the future, each of us is going to stand before the Lord and give an account for his life or her life. We're going to answer for what we did with our hands and what we spoke with our lips. And there are times when, just because I love God, that's not enough for me to make those decisions the right, the right decisions, rather. Sometimes I have to go to this moment and say, do I really want to stand before the Lord someday and answer for this? I do not. Do I really want to try to explain why I said this the way I said this? I do not. And so I'm just going to step back and let go of that or not say that or let go of that thought because one day I'm going to have to give an account for my life. I don't understand how all of it's going to unfold. God's not going to have to decide, am I going to heaven or hell? None of that. But I have to give an account someday. And I know that. And we all will. The second why, I guess, is we hold the keys to our peace. Some of the reason that Peace is elusive for some of you, and you're always just chasing after something else. It's because you're in a spiritual battle with God. God's been very clear what it is to live as a child of the light, and you're just saying, nah, I don't, I'm not going to do it. So this is what I want you to 
how I want you to live with your life and what I want you to do with your hands, not going to do it. You're never going to be at peace if you live in war and tug of war with God. It's just not going to happen. And we hold the keys to our peace. And there are times when I have to say, God, I don't want to do this. I don't want to be a part of this. But you're the creator and I'm not. And so I don't have a say in this. I'm going to accept your truth. I'm going to follow your plan here. Because I ultimately don't want to fight with you. Because I can't win this one. And I'm going to submit to your authority. And there is what Paul later would write in another letter, a peace that passes understanding that comes into our lives. Even when we don't understand it, we submit to God's plan. And the other thing is we will be someone else's reason. Each of us is one day going to be the reason that someone else wants to know more about Jesus, or we're going to be the reason someone is going to say, I've had enough. I've had enough. They say they know Jesus. I don't believe it. I'm as moral as they are, and I don't want to be a part of that. Or we're going to be the reason someone says, after all she's been through, and yet she still holds on to her faith, I at least want to know more. We're going to be someone's reason for wanting to take another step or wanting to take a step away. Each of us. And we just have an opportunity to decide what that's going to be. So he says, live as children of the light. Well, I want to read one last uh, group of verses, two verses, in closing out here. But this is not going to be the end of the book for you. Um, Because, again, I'm just wanting to take off the wrapper to give you the confidence to open it up yourself. And uh, we're going to be together again in six days. We have six days between now and when I'll see you again. And how many chapters do you think there might be in Ephesians? There are six. So I want to encourage all of you, if you don't already have a plan you're on, tomorrow, Ephesians chapter 1, read it once or twice and allow God to speak to you. Say, God, open up my mind so I can understand, open up my heart so I can uh, grasp it, open up my hands so that I can apply it. Like, I want to do this thing. And then Tuesday, chapter 2, Wednesday, chapter 3, and then we'll come back and you will have mastered the letter to the Ephesians uh, next Sunday. Um, But I want us to read these two verses before we close out. Chapter 5, verse 1, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That last phrase, fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, it gives us a picture of what it was like when Jesus gave his life for us. It was as if there was this smell that went to heaven. And the father said, that smells like love. That smells like love to me. Jesus' sacrifice was that fragrant offering. And you and I have a chance to have the same effect on the people and the environments that we're around. Now, all of us have a smell. You know that, don't you? You have a smell. Uh, Some of you have smells that we're still figuring out, but you have a smell. Everybody has one. I can grab a shirt out of my father's closet, and I can just smell my dad. Like I, and he's, it smells good. It's, I think it's still aqua velva, actually, but there's a smell from back in the day. There's just a smell that he has. Some of you are more, uh, what was it, cool water? Was that the thing? I think that was mine. Anyway, then there was Dracar. Then there was Axe body spray. Now some of you are all natural. Whatever. You got your own smell. And even if you don't spray something on, you just have a smell. 
In fact, if all of us dads went out in the, the uh, lobby afterwards, we're not going to. But took off our shirts and laid it down, let our kids come running. They could find us just by smelling the shirts. Oop, this is my dad. It's like, we all have a smell. And when we're living as children of the light, the image that stuck with me was wherever I go, whoever I'm around, I want to be in a place where people can close their eyes when I walk in the room. And people say, that smells like Jesus up in here. It smells like Jesus in this place. By the way, I live my life, by the way, I handle adversity, by the way, I handle conflict, with the words that come out of my mouth, the things I say, whether it's building up, helpful, encouraging, even difficult, but still full of grace and love. That, that ought to be the desire of all of our hearts, that wherever we go, whatever we do, when we walk into a place, everybody around can close their eyes and just say, that smells like Jesus here. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being willing to work through us to the point where others can see you at work in our lives. And God, we know that we've done enough in our lives to disqualify us from ever being able to communicate grace and truth in a way that makes sense to a broken world. But God, if we've been made new, if you're at work in us the way that we hope and pray that you are, then God, we can still be the fragrance of Christ to this world. And there are people all around us right now who are frustrated, who are lost, who are discouraged, who are angry, who are anti this and anti that. And God, we can either speak up and in many ways drive them away from your heart, or we can be careful with what we say and be careful with what we do and Use this as an opportunity to be able to communicate real truth with real love. God, for those who are in this place and are not followers of Jesus, maybe they've never taken that step because of some of us. Maybe I'm the one. Maybe it's someone sitting next to them. Maybe it's someone down the road. Someone lives in their neighborhood. Someone has not lived the life in front of them, and it's made them want to know you less. And God, for whatever reason, I guess just by your grace, they're in this place today and they have another opportunity. And I pray that the invitation that you've placed on them to come and follow you would not be lost on them today. Give them the courage and boldness to say, God, I'm coming. I'm coming home. God, as prisoners of Christ, we stand with Paul, desiring to be children of the light. So as as sincere and as hopeful as we can possibly be, God, uh, we want you to work through us the way you work through them. We want the church here in our city to be just as thriving and just as booming as the church in Ephesus. We want to be able to handle the disappointments and the adversity and the drama in the same way that they learn to handle it, as imitators of God. So God, use us, work through us. Thank you for second chances. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for accepting us as we are, but not allowing us to stay that way. We ask all this in the name of Jesus who saved us. Amen.